This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, April 10th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Telluride discusses changes to affordable housing guidelines. Eurovan Community celebrates Easter. Capital Conversation talks budget and abortion. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, a portion of the railroad walking path on the valley floor was closed on Monday and will be closed on Tuesday, April 11th. San Miguel Power Association will be performing work on a power line. The closed portion of trail runs between the town of Telluride and Eider Creek. Changes are likely coming to Telluride's affordable housing guidelines. These guidelines outline who is eligible to live in the housing units, both to purchase initially, but also continuing qualifications. That's Ali Slayton, assistant town attorney for the town of Telluride. Because it's not just, we don't just take one snapshot at one point in time and then you are good into perpetuity. There are continuing requirements to remain eligible to continue owning a deed-restricted unit in the town of Telluride. And that's what these guidelines are all about. So addressing the, the, the immediate question, Am I even eligible to purchase? But also the question, what do I need to do to continue to be eligible to occupy this unit? The guidelines apply to deed-restricted properties in town. Those are housing mitigation units, town-constructed units like Silverjack and Longwell, and employee dwelling units. The guidelines do not apply to rentals, such as Shandoka, Sunnyside, Virginia Placer, and the Boarding House. The Telluride Housing Subcommittee ideally updates the guidelines every two years. The subcommittee takes a look at these guidelines and really asks itself the question, are these still working? Are these still meeting the program goals and the policy goals that we have for our affordable housing stock? According to Slayton, this is the first time the subcommittee has looked at the guidelines since before COVID, and a lot has changed in the housing world. She says an update is long overdue. We went page by page. They saw every line of the guidelines multiple times. And as we were going through, I asked them at every meeting, what do you mean by this? What what do you want the outcome of this to be to make sure that the language we have in the guidelines is what they is what they actually want to see enforced and to have the outcomes that they're looking for. The affordable housing guideline document is large, and if you look at the changes, it's all marked up in red. But Slayton notes that doesn't mean there are a huge number of big changes. When you look at the packet materials, it's a, it's a hefty red line. It looks like there's a lot changing. Most of those changes were actually just clarifications to the language. So it's not actually changing what we would see as the outcome of any particular situation, but we're hoping to ultimately make these guidelines more readable for those who are interested in either becoming part of the program or who are already subject to it. Slayton says the biggest proposed change has to do with continuing household size requirements. Currently, to purchase a unit, you have to have the same number of people living in the home as there are bedrooms. That configuration can look different with three single roommates, a couple and a roommate, two parents and a child. However, currently, um, two, three, four, five, ten years down the road, you might not have that roommate anymore and you're a two-person household living in a three-bedroom unit. Moving forward, it is going to be a continuing condition, so year after year, It's not that every bedroom has to be filled, but it's just that your household size has to be equivalent to the number of bedrooms. And it really comes down to making sure these units are being used, um, you know, to their their intent to house the most employees possible, um, the most local families, true local families working in the community. 
There is also a proposed change requiring all units be put up for a lottery at resale. Town-built units already go into a lottery, but currently developers can sell housing mitigation units to whoever they like. Ultimately, the idea is that all of these units will be sold by a lottery rather than people being able to choose their buyers. Now, of course, anyone who enters the lottery would still have to be a qualified buyer. Um, It doesn't expand the pool. It just evens the playing field a little bit for people wanting to get housing here in Telluride. Um, It becomes less about who you know um, and more about if you're qualified, you get a chance. While the shifts in guidelines may seem like added requirements on buying or owning a unit, Slayton says that's not actually the case. We're meeting the goals of the program better with these changes. Um, For instance, the term currently used in in the current guidelines is uh, employment for which presence is required, and that's not defined. Um, In these new guidelines, we define what presence required employment is, and it very specifically means those employees who need to be here in this community working. Um, Right now, there's a policy statement that does uh, define to an extent employment for which presence is required, and it would allow remote workers in some situations if they have other ties to the community. But this is about employee housing. It's not about housing for all. It is about housing a pretty specific set of people here in town who work locally, who don't have the uh, means for other housing because there are asset limitations, there's income limitations. So this is about helping the people who give the most of the community and employment and who need to be here and who do not have any other options. The Telluride Housing Subcommittee has proposed the changes, but they still need to be approved by town council before going into effect. Telluride Town Council aims to vote on the proposed changes in May. Town Council will discuss the proposed changes at its meeting on Tuesday, April 18th. The community is encouraged to attend the meeting and share their thoughts and comments on the guidelines. It's mid-morning in Yerevan, Colorado on Easter Sunday. The San Miguel River runs thick and brown with spring mud through the desert canyon, and the sky is cloudless. Bare trees cast shadows over the earth, mottled with sand and thick patches of the early wildflowers. Below the canopy of the ballpark, a small group is gathering for an Easter service. President Mark, once he's done, we're going to eat, so everybody get your bellies ready. In the 1980s, the federal government declared the uranium mines and the town of Yerevan itself contaminated and embarked on a decades-long cleanup that involved relocating the town's residents and scraping their homes from the earth. Around 10 years ago, the cleanup was declared complete, and the old community ballpark was repurposed as a campground and picnic area. Gary Reeves, who was born in Yerevan, says the Easter service taking place today dates back to a tradition held by the town itself. We had a thing of uh, sunrise services at crosses down on the cliffs above the forks of the river. Uh, There's a confluence of the uh, Dolores and San Miguel rivers. Every Easter, we would, uh, the church here in Yerevan would do an Easter sunrise services at those crosses. Once the uh, town went down, we, it, you know, it just pretty much stopped. Reeves moved to Grand Junction when the federal government began its cleanup efforts. But he and his wife visited Yerevan often, and at one point he decided it was time to revive the tradition. I thought we drove, stopped at the old place where the crosses were, and I t- looked at her and I told her, I said, 
I think I want to get this started back up again. So that year, I built some new crosses, and we were doing it down in the old spot out on the cliffs. And But there were so many, even myself included, were getting older, and then my parents were older, you know, at that time, and couldn't crawl across the rocks to get out to the crosses. So I think it was four years ago, we moved it here to the ballpark. The sermon is offered by Pastor Mark Jones of Nucla, and Dan Williams, pastor at the New Hope Pentecostal Church in Natarita, speaks as well. In his remarks, Jones says he's faced medical difficulty in the past years, and it's the strength of the congregation which has gotten him through. Part of the reason that he and I are both here is because you guys Amen. 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 So, from my standpoint, I want to thank you guys for your prayers. I certainly want to thank God for me allowing me to be here and allowing me to share with you guys this morning as well. But, but I really want to thank all of you. The service is followed by a lunch, a long potluck of deviled eggs and beans, potato salad, and coconut pies. Jordan Grant was born in Yerevan and moved to Montrose. He says any opportunity to come back is a trip into memory. But yeah, it's pretty fun to see people you haven't seen for 40 years, 30 years. Uh, but the terrain never changes. It's, you know, it's every rock looks the same. <laughs> but but the town itself has kind of kind of disappeared. Nice to have this ballpark kind of preserved for the for everybody to come visit. Alongside those from Yerevan, the service brings together a collection of congregations from the area. Bonnie Yardley of Nukla said she came to see her pastor speak, but agrees the whole West End is a place rich with history. There's a lot of memories. Uh, my husband and I, we married in 1974. He worked in the, in the mines for Union Carbide till they closed down. We've, we've seen... Nuclear being a thriving town with stores to not very much now, but it's still home. Amidst lunch and sparkling blue skies, Yerevan marks another Easter. The state legislature has tackled one of its primary responsibilities of the session – and lawmakers are reacting to national developments regarding abortion. In this installment of Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Lucas Brady Woods shares the latest. Hey, Lucas, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Of course, thanks for having me. First off, you know, we talked about it last week. It is a major part of the legislature's job is to pass the budget. And they have done that now. And it's going to Governor Polis to get a signature. Um, can you share a little bit about, you know, how much is the budget and what are some of the, the key takeaways that will affect Coloradans? Well, the budget comes to about $35.8 billion. And that's uh, a billion more than last year's. Um, and it deals with a lot of things. Um, you know, it, it funds the government itself, and it also, you know, it makes appropriations for bills that are passed and things like that. Um, there's some increased funding for schools this year. Um, I believe that the funding increased per pupil to about $900 per pupil. 
uh, spending uh, in that budget, which uh, lawmakers are touting as a positive. And there's also another interesting thing that is in the budget. It, it creates a new office of school safety, which sort of takes all of the responsibilities that seem to be scattered throughout different departments around uh, crisis response in schools, around safety financing and funding for schools, distributing that. So all of that will be, you know, centered in this new office, the Office of School Safety um, in uh, the Department of Public Safety. So that, that'll be, that's, you know, definitely a response to some of the violence that we've been seeing in schools. I also wanted to check in with you. Um, it's a big topic. It's a hot button issue about abortion. Obviously, the legislature itself has been passing um, and debating bills related to abortion and health care in that regard. Um, but we're also coming out of a ruling in Texas. And then also Colorado was part of a kind of counter ruling in Washington um, that would aim to make abortion more accessible or keep it accessible to folks in, in a certain number of states. What are you hearing from lawmakers and kind of what, what's going on in Denver surrounding that? So uh, I've talked to a bunch of lawmakers today about this, actually, and, and to get gauge their reactions, both on the Republican and the Democrat side. Um, the Democrats, you know, are very against the Texas ruling and say that it's, it's dangerous and that, you know, it goes against decades of medical science. Um, you know, there's also concerns from both parties about a judge in one state, a federal judge in one state, having the ability to challenge something like an FDA approval from decades ago. Uh, Democrats stand by the reproductive health care bills that they've passed here, including one that um, increases protections for people coming to Colorado for reproductive health care from out of state. And, you know, between these two lawsuits, it's, it's, it remains to be seen exactly how this shapes out and what will become, you know, the law of the land. But lawmakers here are confident that they're going to be able to protect out-of-state patients who are seeking abortions, including with Mifeprestone, the abortion pill, um, part of the abortion pill, I should say, here in Colorado with this new legislation um, and protect, you know, not only those patients who are seeking the care, but the providers who are giving it to them from any out-of-state investigation or prosecution over it. Um, and, you know, like you said, there's this, this countersuit in Washington to the Texas suit, and Colorado is part of that. So I've, I've had some indication that, you know, Colorado will be allowed to continue using this drug in the meantime until these cases are um, worked out. But here in Colorado, there's some outrage from Democrats, some skepticism from both sides, but also the Republicans declined to comment directly and are, are watching this closely, as they've told me. You know, in Telluride, in many mountain communities across um, Colorado, we are actively in off-season with the ski resort closed. I know that um, Denver and the state capitol doesn't get an off-season in the same way we do. Um, but I was wondering if, you know, there's any fun happenings or anything going on as spring comes into um, full bloom in, in Denver. Well, I certainly am thrilled that it's spring, even though I work in the basement press office with no windows. I can imagine that it's really sunny out there. <laughs> but uh, the lawmakers are also happy that it's spring as well. They were able to get their work done last week and 
take Friday off. The lawmakers had a lovely long weekend. Um, and it's, it's, you know, getting warmer here. And you can see <laughs> lawmakers sort of not as bundled up when they walk into the building, that's for sure. So, you know, there's definitely a spring feel, but it's not off season yet here. We still have just about a month to go. Well, Lucas, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me, and we'll check back in next week. Thank you. As always, happy to do it. That was KOTO's Lucas Brady-Woods reporting from Denver. Spring has sprung, and the off-season is officially here. Off-season, of course, means a number of restaurants around Telluride in Mountain Village are closing, but some spots for food will stick around. Keeping their lights on through the off-season are... Cindy Bread, Crazy Elk, The Saw Pit Mercantile, Corner House, Kazahana, Smugglers, Steamies, and Uno Dos Trace. Counterculture, Caravan, Coffee Cowboy, Brown Dog, Esperanza's, High Pie, Baked and Telluride, Butcher and Baker, La Cocina de Luz, Strong House, Telluride Truffle, Their Bar, and Woodier will also close for several weeks over the off-season. Days and hours of operation may vary, so make sure to check ahead of time. You know what doesn't suck? Succulents. This week, the Wilkinson Public Library is hosting an adult maker night, Succulent Crafts. The library is inviting adults for a chill night of plants and crafts to make and take home. Succulent Craft Night will take place on Wednesday, April 12th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at the library. Registration is requested at telluridelibrary.org. The U.S. Department of Interior wants to update a truth-in-advertising law regarding Native American-made arts and crafts. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD has more. The Department of Interior reached out to tribal leaders nationwide, asking for input on some potential updates to the Indian Arts and Crafts Act. The 1990 law requires truth in advertising when it comes to Native American-made products. Violations can result in fines of up to $1 million or a five-year prison sentence. The law makes it illegal to sell an art or craft product in a way that falsely suggests it is produced by a Native American or a particular Native American tribe. Now, the Department of Interior is looking at updates to the law that would include packaging and labeling requirements and other enforcement measures. Changes could also allow non-Native Americans to work on Native American products in certain cases. Over the next several months, Interior will host public comment sessions in New Mexico, Las Vegas, Alaska, Oklahoma, as well as a virtual session online. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. All across the Southwest, there's a problem. There's not enough water to go around. And the water that does arrive often falls far away from where people live. That leads to tense conversations about how and where it should be used. A new project in Colorado is trying to bridge the gap, starting with the youngest water users. KUNC's Alex Hager reports. How well do you remember fifth grade? The days can be a blur of fractions and recess, but there were always a few memorable ones that stood out. Today is one of those days at Basalt Middle School. There's a special guest, and the kids are learning about water. And I want you to repeat after me. A watershed? A watershed. Is where all the water flows to one place. Flows to one place. All right. 
Megan Dean works with the Roaring Fork Conservancy, a local river nonprofit. In this classroom, the excitement levels are somewhere between field trip and substitute teacher showing a movie. Dean is here to help set them up with pen pals on the other side of the state. They start looking at their pen pals as uh, somebody that they can become friends with and somebody that they can share experiences with. And after learning and sharing experiences, it becomes a little easier to wrap your head around sharing water. You see, when adults have conversations about sharing water in Colorado and all across the Southwest, things get territorial. Right now, states that share the Colorado River are caught in a standoff. But when it comes to kids, Dean is hoping to set them on a more neighborly track. First, we spend a little time learning what water is used for. Cities, farms, habitats, and, well, just about everything. Just ask Cameron Hutter. I didn't know pizza required water. What did you think it was made of? I thought it was made out of dough. And we're learning another big surprise today, where the water comes from and just how far it goes. In this state, more than 80% of the water falls on the west side of the mountains. But more than 80% of the state's people are on the east side. So these kids, in two schools on opposite sides of the divide, will be trying to bridge it with their letters. At first, student Harper French reacts the same as a lot of adults who learn about that split. So they should thank us for sharing the water. But the whole point of this activity is to combat that mentality, making kids think about working together to take good care of the shrinking resource. French is already lining up the questions for his pen pal. Uh, they, they live in like a giant city and stuff. What is it like? Like, we live in a beautiful place. I don't know if they do. So, uh, yeah, I'd probably ask them about that. A few weeks later, I follow the letters on their journey all the way across the mountains to meet the other pen pals, this time in Aurora, just outside of Denver. I'm going to allow you to open your letters, read them, and then we're going to talk about how you're going to respond to them. Teacher Karen Child is handing out brightly decorated envelopes from Basalt Middle School to her fifth graders. Mine's wrote, my name is Emily and I am a fifth grade at Bass Middle School. I live three hours away from Denver. Ooh, that's far. Malaya Moore and her classmates are learning about how their buddies use water. Mine said that she likes to go rafting. She likes to um, make, like, plant like water plants with her mom. She likes to watch movies and she lo- she loves, love, loves rafting. I think, I don't know if I said that already. But there's a common thread. The water that Cole Walton and the Aurora kids rely on every day is the same water used by their pen pals. I learned that both of our water comes from the same place, which is the snow and the mountains and the streams and the rivers. And that fact is one Roaring Fork Conservancy's Megan Dean hopes will stick. They see kind of the baseline science and knowledge as something that's very understandable, actually, because they're not distracted from personal wants. And that, she hopes, will help shape a new generation of water users in the West. I'm Alex Hager. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for clear skies tonight with a low near 35 degrees. Tuesday should be sunny with a high near 65, and Tuesday night should be clear with a low around 40. Wednesday calls for more sun and a high near 60 degrees with a chance of showers and strong winds developing in the afternoon. 
Wednesday night calls for wind and clouds with a low near 40 degrees. This has been the news for Monday, April 10th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. Koto News is scaling back for two weeks with newscasts on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday during that time. We will start back with our full news programming on April 17th.